Hi, this is Andy Hahn, and this is the 55th episode of Guided Self-Healing, Fearless Living. And today we actually have our first interview, which, and I'm very honored to have my dear friend and colleague, Ragini Michaels, whose work I can tell you I respect so deeply. And we actually, in our second year training, whenever we want to say anything about maturity and what maturity really is, she's the first person we talk about, both from a personal and from a philosophical perspective. So I don't know if Ragini wants to say anything about who she is, because if you do Ragini, you can certainly tell us. And otherwise, we'll just go on. So if you'd, okay. like, if you'd like to say anything about who you are or how you came to be where you are today, that would be great. And if not, you can just tell us why paradox management, whichever you prefer, wherever your heart is, you tell us. <laughs> she, you give me a lot of room to say anything. That's really nice. Well, thank you for your kind introduction. Well, that's um, like I, spaciousness, you know, like good. <laughs> well, Andy and I have known each other for a long time, and I have a lot of respect for his work as well. And um, I come at my work through a background in neurolinguistic programming and an equally long year of a private years of private practice using uh, NLP as a way to help people change their behaviors. Um, accompanied by an equally long excursion into the spiritual domain with meditation, contemplation, reflection, etc., all of which seemed to direct me towards the discovery of something that answered my primary question, which was, why aren't I happy? <laughs> and that has been a primary drive for me to understand uh, why I wasn't happy. And uh, in, a, in a nutshell, and I explained all this in, in one of my books and various other places I've spoken, but I discovered that my definition of happiness was the absence of unhappiness, period. It would be gone. So there'd be none of it there. And as soon as a little tiny bit of happiness, unhappiness came in, I was unhappy, of course. So the work really was driven by that desire to understand why I wasn't happy, which led me to the question of who am I, which led me to Andy over here, Dr. Hahn, and his exploration of the essence process, which had a lot to do with um, identity, which was very helpful and did indeed play a role in the, in the um, evolution of my own work around helping people understand why we're not happy and what we can do to be happy. So it culminated in a six-step process, which is a, available online and in, in my book, and um, a relatively simple, although complex process based on, based on the psychology of mystics or an awakened psychology. But the drive behind all of it was, how do I be happy? Because isn't life supposed to be happy? And many people told me no, but then I thought, well, you know, the Constitution says, you know, be happy, you have a right to be happy. Dalai Lama says happiness is a, what life is all about. So I figured I was on the right track <laughs> and kept going to uh, create over the last 35, 40 years, um, a lot of work around what's come to be called paradox management, you know, paradox, uh, contradictions, dilemmas, things like that, that plague our daily lives that we really don't actually have a way to manage very well because the primary way that I was working to be happy was to get rid of everything that made me unhappy. 
and only have happiness be perpetual, long-lasting, and never change. And unfortunately, that took me into a fact of life, because my work was originally called facticity, because it was based on two essential facts. One, everything changes. So my, my core strategy of trying to get only happy and no unhappiness was shot, you know, shot to hell right there. It's like, wait a minute, if everything changes, I am in trouble, you know. And the second fact that I discovered was that everything in our world is actually sitting on a relationship between polar opposites. And I thought, well, if that's true, then I'm not going to be able to get rid of unhappiness and I'm going to have to learn how to deal with that. And that became the impetus for the work that I have been doing for such a long time. And, you know, I just want to share, I've shared this many times before, but one of the things that was so important to me was when I was in India, I was in an ashram studying with a guru there, of course. And um, I was sitting on a wall outside the ashram and this, a beggar came by. And he was a typical beggar with his hands out asking for alms, you know, and uh, tattered clothes, no teeth, nothing on his feet. And his eyes were just like, and he was like shining. It was almost like a light bulb was, was shining from inside of him outside. And I thought, man, how does he do that? <laughs> I would be just, in my opinion, in my mind at the time, it was a demeaning state of being. And yet he looked so happy. And I thought, man, I don't get it. And that's when I had this insight. It was just a huge insight that just like went bam to my whole life is that he was okay with being unhappy. Whatever it is that made me unhappy, this dude was actually okay with it. And that began the process that there, there obviously was a way to be happy even when you were being feeling unhappy or not getting what you wanted. So that's sort of the impetus of what started the whole thing. Well, I can tell you where my attention went, which I actually am very curious about. Yes. Um, out of all the things you said, which many of them gave me goosebumps, but be that as it may, um, I was really struck by your statement about the Constitution, which of course isn't about the right to happiness, but about the pursuit of happiness. Pursuit of happiness. And what I'm really curious about is, how do you understand, this, I mean, like happiness in the idea of the polar opposite of whatever pursuing would be and the polar opposite of pursuing and how pursuing happiness and whatever its opposite is would be informed by your work. I don't know why that question came to me, but suddenly it was like, because pursuing has this idea that, you know, you're not just happy, you're pursuing something, but polar opposites has the idea that even pursuing happiness must have some place in a world of pursuit and whatever the polar opposite of non-pursuit is. And suddenly it was like, I was really curious to know what your reflections were on that, if that makes any weird sense. It, sure, it makes sense. It's always fun to talk with you, Andy. <laughs> it always goes in interesting places. Um, pursuit, you can't say non-pursuit because that makes it a negation, which the mind doesn't like. So we'd have to start off with asking the good question, which is what is the opposite of pursuing? So a pursuit. So if you're pursuing something, it presupposes that you don't have it. First of all, that you want it and you don't have it. So there's a desire in there. Uh, for something. So you could work, and this is always a question of finding out what works for the individual, because we're all so unique. 
that uh, polar opposites might differ in the language that we use person to person. But um, so let's just us be here pursuit uh, of something that you want that you don't have. So it could be, uh, let's see, when you have something, you own it, the ownership of it, you um, uh, experience it, it's yours, you have it, you already have it, satisfaction, perhaps, pursuit, satisfaction, you could say pursuit and acquisition, you could use that as your basic uh, polarity. If you've acquired something, you're no longer in pursuit of it because you have it. And that's an interesting thing to realize you can't desire something you have. But how does that work for you in your context if we're thinking about you and your relationship with happiness mm -hmm. and this idea of pursuing it and whatever we're going to say in this context would be your polar opposite? How, okay. Can you talk a little bit? I know we weren't prepared for this, but it's just stunning <laughs> to me how it is that that kind of paradox around your subjective experience of happiness, whether it's pursuing or being with or whatever, whatever words will be yours, obviously, because you get to choose your polar opposites. That's in right. Always of, in the context of happiness, whatever that's going to be. But like, I just love to hear about it from your perspective in your own journey, if that makes any sense. Sure. Well, I think for me, the thing that I said first, the fundamental fact that has to inform all of this is the fact of change or impermanence. Everything changes. So acquisition or uh, pursuing something is going to change when you've acquired it. Okay. So if I'm, if I'm in pursuit of happiness, when I've acquired whatever it is I'm in pursuit of, whether it's a relationship that makes me happy or money that makes me happy or a ha good haircut that makes me happy. I'm not kidding on that one. A good haircut that makes you happy, a pair of shoes that fit, uh, money in the bank, um, uh, a happy relationship. Every one of those things once acquired, I have found, dissipates. It changes because it's impermanent. That has been the crux of the whole issue is how to manage that transition between having what I want and then it's gone due to impermanence, not due to me. It's just going to change. And what does it change into? Pursuit. I'm immediately after happiness again because that's my context is happiness. So no matter whether I have it or I don't have it, happiness is the situation I'm trying to train my brain to look at happiness as something that comes and goes, right? Because as soon as I lose, as soon as what I want starts to change into what I don't want, which is its absence, right? I normally get upset, right? It's like, oh my God, oh my God. So if I understand that this is a dynamic, that this is actually a created dynamism that flows, that keeps me moving, to greater and greater understandings of happiness, to greater depths of happiness, to strive for higher heights of happiness, you know, instead of thinking happiness is just this one straight line, like a good relationship, money in the bank so I can retire. I mean, you know, weighing X number of pounds instead of, you know, 20 on top of that number, 
you know, there's all these, you know, having a, a modern, a, a modern, uh, uh, up-to-date car rather than one that's 20 years old. You know, once I have those things, I can become complacent, which is one of the downsides of being happy is that you can get, for me, I get complacent, I get overly comfortable, but that even that starts to change. But if I know that the downside of as, as my happiness dissipates, I'm going to go into pursuit again, then I have to, I can ask myself, instead of going back for the same thing, I can ask myself, what's the next more exquisite, more tasty, more desirable, more beautiful, more harmonious expression of happiness that's waiting for me out there? Because I've already had A, B, C, D. I want to know what G, F, H, I is, right? Assuming that there's an evolution, an evolutionary pull that continues um, driving me towards discovering the ultimate happiness, which of course, at this moment in my journey, would be to be centered and peaceful, no matter what's happening, which is the name of my online training. Perhaps I can throw that in there. Um, centered, it calls it centered and peaceful no matter what's happening. I like that. Centered no matter what. It doesn't mean that you stay that. centered, right? You can't stay centered with no movement because life is movement. So it's how do you come back to your center amidst this constant flow of change between polar opposites? And I found that the key was understanding this flow that everybody talks about. We've been talking about it for years. We meditate. Sometimes it's called the zone in the business world, right? There's a pattern hidden inside that flow of change. And my work actually, as far as I'm concerned, identifies the pattern. It's like it, when you watch the waters of a, of a river flowing down the riverbank, I mean, through down the riverbed, the water doesn't say, I'm only going to stay on the right side. And, I, and you refuse to go to the left. The water goes back and forth. Okay, So there's wisdom in that. There's a practical wisdom that's all around us in the sense that life itself outside of our mind, doesn't seem to have any problem with the comings and goings of things and the rhythm of life, whether it's the tides coming in and going out, you know, the shore doesn't get upset. We do, but the shore doesn't, you know, night and day, you know, they're in their own rhythm and they happen without any fight between day and night. In fact, they share each other, right? During the day, you have shade. So night is still allowed to exist, but in a lesser, you know, expression. And the same with night, you still have light is still allowed via the stars and the moon. And there's no competition. There's no antagonism between the two. Whereas in my daily life, you know, I want to be connected. I don't want to feel separate. I want approval. I do not want criticism. I want to be together. I don't want to be alone, for example. Um, I want you to be my ally, not my enemy ever. I don't want you to dislike anything I say or whatever. I want to be accepted and never rejected. You know, these are polar opposites that plague every relationship that we have, whether it's a personal one or it's at work or at business. You know, I want to feel grateful. I don't want to be grieving over something, right? It's just there's, I want to be fulfilled. Here's the back to happiness. I don't want to be longing. But once I understood the value of longing, of pursuit, that that's the drive that helps me evolve, that helps me grow, helps me discover new hidden little corners of my, of my being, my personality, my mind, my energy, 
you know, my, my soul or my spirit that frees it to come forth because I'm searching for it. So our role in the evolution of ourselves is quite strong in that we have to be searching for something in order to find it. And once we find it, it grants us a gift, which in my experience then leads me to another gift, which I also don't have. And I start longing for <laughs> So I don't know. That's a lot of words coming out of my mouth. So there you go, Andy. I, I thought your words were magnificent. And I will tell you my reflection on what you said. And you, I'd love to hear your reflection on my reflection. Okay. The reflection on what you said is that man that you met in India who was radiating something that really what you were calling happiness at the time was, for lack of a better word, acceptance and self-acceptance. Does that seem true to you? Because that's what yeah. I'm hearing, but you can, you can refine that yeah. if I get that wrong. No, I think that's totally right. He was quite capable of accepting what was his experience, what was in his, what was on the road that he was journeying on. Um, I'm recently exploring a lot of things around looking at how I've attached my worth and value to my external image, whether it's how I look or the kind of car I drive or the kind of apartment I live in. And uh, it's, it's interesting to just challenge yourself to accepting what life brings your way moment to moment as what is and not try to change it. Just be with it. And of course, you've got to have a little bit of practice on that. because You've got to have some place to go where you feel calm enough to accept it. So I think that takes you more, for me, into a, a more spiritual realm where you think you're part of something larger and there's some rhythm, there's some uh, order, and that takes us to order and chaos. Okay? So another polarity, you're always going to end up once you understand this dynamic and have sort of adopted it to play with it a little bit, um, you're going to find it plays out just about everywhere, you know, from one thing to its opposite. And it goes back to impermanence and um, some drive inside of us. You want to call it life, soul, spirit, whatever, that wants to always acquire more. I mean, there's something in us that drives us from being a baby to a toddler, to a, a kid that walks, to an adolescent, to a young adult, to an adult. And that happens without us doing anything. You can't stop that, right? So there's another, what's been very helpful to me is to realize there's another force at play that I can only follow. You can only follow. And for me, pursuit is part of what following that is. It's, it's pursuing something. I can pursue a car. I can pursue this pull that I feel inside of me that we all feel. We all know when something's right for us. There's a pull. And you might doubt it. Your mind might come in and doubt it. But nevertheless, you have felt a pull to take you in a certain direction, whether it's to get married or buy a car or go to a meditation retreat, etc. Well, what I'm gathering from what you're saying is a couple of things, which is really interesting. And I'm actually, one of them is, I think, more interesting to you and I spiritually, but one of them is much more interesting to me psychologically. So I'll yeah. tell you the one that's interesting, I think, to both of us spiritually is this idea that there is an evolutionary process that goes on that is a natural evolutionary process 
that you could say the way I would describe it is going from egocentricity to life centricity. That's how I would describe it. Okay. Uh, but I think we probably would have different words for the same thing. But mm -hmm. there, there, there is a sense of like, if I could really, if I could really pursue life or open to life in some way in every aspect of what life is and say, I will open to that. Well, that's a higher order of pursuit than perhaps pursuing, um, you know, if I take a really horrendous example, pursuing Jews to kill because I'm a Hitler youth and I get some kind of passionate joy out of killing them or something, right? But they're both pursuits, but there's a very different aspect of the pursuing. So yes. what I gather is one aspect of what you're talking about is, an, uh, for lack of a better word, a maturational process around the movement from something that is very egoically oriented to something that is profoundly divine or life oriented. That's what I'm gathering you're saying that there's some kind of evolution that seems to happen with that. And if you'd like yeah. to talk about that, I would love to hear about it because that's the spiritual thing. But what okay. I'm psychologically interested in is we both know the Enneagram and we both know that you and I are both hard points. Um, and we both know that we are similar hard points and your, your statement about image and the craving to be a certain way. I would love to know what your evolution has been like for yourself, if you wanna talk about that, as you've gone through this, when there is such a powerful compulsion around presenting yourself in a certain way, mm -hmm. what you've discovered on that journey in your paradox management, if you'd like to share. And if you wanna talk about something else, that's fine too. That's I'm fine, I'm happy to talk about whatever you want me to talk about. But um, I think in terms of the um, Enneagram and the compulsion, and it is a compulsion, it's like an obsession of, from which I had no distance at all. It was simply who I was. Um, the, and, and if it wasn't fulfilled, if the image was not exactly right, it threw me into despair and deep unhappiness because it made me feel I was defective and um, uh, unfit to participate in the world which is oftentimes the case of personality issues, psychologically speaking. When I began to understand that, it was interesting intellectually, uh, but the need to actually be, be able to embody such an idea that I was not that, that I was more than that, was the intriguing aspect of it. So that was where I can't really separate the spiritual aspect of it from the psychological aspect of it, which is why I looked at the psychology of mystics or an, an awakened psychology is what I looked at and made my model from. Because how is it that these guys could be so calm in the presence of like that beggar whose image was not one that I would ever want to have, right? To this day, I don't want that image. However, because of the evolution of understanding impermanence and understanding opposites, and getting to the place where I could begin to have some distance from that. I could see, I want that, but it's not me. I want that. It's like I look at my hand and I go, I want my hand. I don't want to lose my hand, but my hand is not the totality of who I am. And that's obvious, right? But in terms of my image thing, it was not obvious at all. Until via meditation and contemplation and various other things, I was able to get just the tiniest bit of distance from it so that I could get above it and see it. Like, 
oh, I see that's an idea, right? That image is, is what makes me valuable, right? I have to prove my value and worth. And because I could see it, I was no longer it. Mm-hmm. I had some distance from it. And that began the process of making my peace with its presence. I still have my personality. It still wants to look good. It still wants everything to be nice and not ugly. But it doesn't define who I am anymore because of that distance. And I say, and then I got the distance myself. And there are many ways people get the distance by understanding the value of change and impermanence. And that uh, there was a flow of opposites here. Many opposites were involved in image, um, being beautiful, being ugly, being smart, being stupid, um, being uh, getting acclaim versus criticism. You know, there were all kinds of, of sets of polar opposites that were at play in holding up this thing of image. And when it wasn't held up with the one that I thought was good, then I got depressed and I wanted to get rid of the other. So the big learning was don't try to get rid of anything. No, 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 no. Unless you're traumatized, in which case Andy's work is perfect, right? Once you've got a little bit more balance, I think my work becomes more available to you. I think you have to do heal the trauma aspects that uh, Andy's work, your work deals with. Um, And then one can actually start working with the paradox management because you're a little bit clearer. You're not being pulled down by that uh, traumatic impact on your brain and your body. So I don't know if that answers your question at all, Andy. Does that help? I'm just sharing. We're we're the only two here, and it answered it for me. I can't speak to anyone. (laughs) I guess we have to hear what they have to say. I mean, it was wonderful. But ultimately, though, it is your psychology that I am aiming to shift so that impermanence, because when when you're young and growing up, the mind is not taught that change is relevant, and it's not taught that opposites are relevant. So you don't, the mind pays no attention to it. It puts it on a little shelf over here and says, irrelevant to, to my happiness and survival. But what we're doing is we're changing the, the programming of the unconscious mind. And at the same time, laying down a new neural pathway in your brain that says both sets of, both opposites are important. It's one whole thing. And that changes your strategy for living. Because now you're going to be willing to accept what is and relax with it, as opposed to spending all of your life energy trying to get rid of the things you don't like, like feeling stupid or having distance in your connection, in your relationship, or feeling separate or feeling alone. Everybody has something they don't want. And most of our life energy, psychologically, emotionally, energetically, spiritually, really even, is to say, take this away from me, please. I don't ever want to experience that. And that is not the road to happiness. That I can tell you. Well, I would love to know a little bit more about your process when you said what it is, even with your understanding of this, that allowed for that spaciousness that you could begin to witness yourself, even though you had that knowing, what was it of that? Do you have a sense of what finally allowed you to say, I am the one who's witnessing that, that that is fundamentally who I am and I'm not the image. Do you have a sense more about that? 
um, because you began well, to describe it, but like it sounds like at some point or other there was some kind of awareness or something, but um, I don't know. Well, I think awareness is incredibly important. I think the thing that, because you have to be aware first that you're stuck or you're unhappy and you have to be aware that you want more, first of all. But I think the thing that changed it for me was the awareness that where I put my attention made a big difference. If I took my attention and I put it on the problem, then the problem became more real to me. But if I took my attention and I put it on something that made me feel calm, a lot of people use a mantra, et cetera, et cetera, things like that, um, the problem starts to dissipate. What, what I discovered is that my attention, you know, your attention is, you know, you put your attention, if I say put your attention on your toe right now, you know, you can put your attention there, right? So that's what I mean by attention, that thing that moves when you tell it to move. Okay. When I learned that it wasn't helpful to me to put my attention on trying to solve that problem about image, that I was going to feel beautiful and I was going to feel ugly, I was going to feel smart and I was going to feel stupid, I was going to have things that were new and things that were old. When I stopped putting my, my attention on getting rid of that problem, so to speak, that's what makes the difference because then I can it, I can let it be there and it doesn't bother me because I'm not attending to it, right? It's like if you live next to the freeway and you put your attention on the sound of the traffic all the time, you're going to be upset because you're never going to feel calm. But if you can take your attention off of the traffic on the freeway and you put it back on something that makes you feel good, right, which is just presence, or being centered, finding your center spot, you know, that middle point between the two. You know, and I know the Buddhists talk about the middle way all the time, but they don't pay any attention to the circumference. You don't have a middle without, you know, circle somewhere, right? You, you got to have that. And it's how we look at that that makes the difference as far as I'm concerned. That was the difference is where do I put my attention? First, I have to understand that there's impermanence and that there's a pattern between but in this life flow that we call our lives and then stop trying to get rid of it and make it different and put my attention someplace else. That's well, a value well, to me. It sounds like part of the attention is in your example, that there's the noise there, but you don't have to put your attention on the noise. Right. And right. But part of it is that when there's the noise, you feel reactive. Yes. Right? So how does one choose whether to take one's attention off the noise and put it onto something else like birds in the yard versus taking their attention and putting it on the fact that they were having reactivity to the noise on the highway? When, when would you, how do you differentiate those two? Which one makes me happy? The birds are the freeway noise. If I really want to be happy and I know that the freeway noise doesn't make me happy, but the birds do, then I have the power, and I think this is a big point, mm -hmm. discovering I have the power to move my attention. We don't really think we have the power to move our attention, mostly because it is so already just glued to what we're experiencing, and we either like it or we don't like it. 
So I, I think that that's a very important piece, you know, to understanding there's a power that we have and there's attention has power. So wherever you put it, it, it changes your experience. So in my case, since I want to be happy, centered and peaceful, no matter what, that's my goal. That's the name of my book, the name of my course, right? I don't care what's coming at me down the road. My goal is to be happy, centered and peaceful, no matter what's there. So I can't do that if I haven't claimed uh, uh, some, some ability to, to take my attention and move it around. And that takes, unfortunately for us all to hear, practice. And this is why people meditate and do other things to get good. This is why a basketball player stands on the basketball court and keeps shooting the thing to learn how to get it in. It's the same thing. You have to keep learning how to take your attention, attention and move it away. I think awareness precedes this. You have to be aware of what we're talking about. But once you're aware that you're not your personality, for example, or that it isn't going to benefit you to constantly try to get rid of something that's going to come back again and again and again, then you have to practice putting taking your attention off of it and putting it elsewhere. Someplace that brings you happiness. And I found for me, that's acceptance of what is. That makes me happy. If I can accept what is, there's a certain kind of peace and calm that comes with that. It's like, oh, here's what is. Yeah, that, that's what I'm trying to understand actually for myself too. So tell me about accepting what is as the noise of the highway so that it doesn't make me unhappy versus realizing it's making me unhappy. So I'm gonna bring my attention away from it to the birds. They seem like different kinds of processes to me. One is saying, I'm aware of the sounds of the highways, but I don't have to be reactive to it. One is I'm aware that they're making me unhappy. So I'm gonna bring my attention to something that makes me happy, i.e. the birds. And they seem like different processes. So could you speak well, about they that? They are because you're making a decision. The way you said it is um, I'm hearing the traffic on the freeway and I don't have to be reactive about it. That's your mind coming in and saying you have a choice. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if you're reactive, you're reactive. <laughs> if you say, I don't have to be reactive, then you're probably already reactive or you're expecting reactivity. So the, the value is in accepting that, recognizing reactivity. And the minute you recognize it or feel it in your body, you are saying, okay, you're saying, I'm going to go to the place where reactivity doesn't live. I'm going to go to my, you know, wherever it is. In, in my case, it's my spiritual teacher. All right. I'm going to go there because reactivity doesn't live there. It lives over here. And if I take my attention and I pull it from where I'm reactive, because I'm paying attention to my reactivity and I move my attention, the reactivity can't be as full of life as it was because I'm no longer giving it life. I mean, I think the thing I'm trying to say is your attention gives life to things. It brings things to life. It amplifies what's there. So if you don't, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this is part of the process. If, you're, if there's trauma there and you can't get your attention off, your work is what you want to be doing. <laughs> okay, You want to be doing that work. So you're freeing up the energy, the, the ability to move your attention. You're ungluing it from that. And your work is so good at doing that. 
and then letting the person go to the next place where they can be with where more joy is, more happiness, more acceptance. Excuse me. So I think that's the difference. Yeah, what you're saying makes sense. Um, And I think for me also the struggle has been both in terms of reactivity, can I bring my attention and the object of my attention to my reactivity versus can I um, just say, you know, this is causing me reactivity so I don't have to bring my attention to that thing at all. And I think that that for me has also been an ongoing, you know, um, struggle. I mean, like if I take something simple, if I have, you know, something in the cabinet that I like to eat, I can notice my craving and try to sit with my craving and know the thing is in the cabinet, or I can get the thing out of the cabinet and put something in there that I wouldn't have so much craving for, which is the equivalent of the sounds of the noise in the highway, right? And they're, they're you know, and um, my inclination is to do the first one that you talked about, which is to say, like, let's move the chocolate out of there, which is my equivalent to the noise on the highway and put something in there that while I like it, I don't say, oh my goodness, because, you know, craving is, uh, you know, our deal as heart points as opposed to aversion, so to speak, you know, so it's right. like, which do I pay attention to? What's underlying my craving or getting the chocolate out of the cabinet, so to speak, and putting something in there that I like just as much that I don't have cravings for. Um, and that has been a constant dialogue with me and the person I wrote this book with about which practice is a more useful practice to be with the craving and leave the chocolate there, so to speak, or the noise or whatever, or to just say like, let me bring my attention someplace else and stop feeding it with even my knowing that that thing is there. And it's, I find for me that that's been a constant um, edge trying to know which way I want to go with that. Well, I think for me, the challenge with that is to find something that is more pleasurable than the chocolate. And that's where I would put my attention. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get rid of the desire for the sweetness of life. That ain't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. But if I can find something that I find more fulfilling, more tasty, more sweet, more pleasurable than chocolate, then it's easier for me to shift my attention away from the chocolate. I don't want to struggle with it. That's the, as soon as I start struggling, it's got me. Mm-hmm. If I start struggling with my craving, it ha- it already has me because now I'm into, I don't want it to be there, right? So now I'm, set, I'm setting up what I like against what I dislike, which is the key issue that is the problem from my work's point of view. So find something that's better than chocolate. And of course, some people say, well, that's got to be sex or alcohol or, and I guess what I'm ultimately saying is happiness. Somebody wrote a book on it. I really need to find out the person's author. Happiness is an inside job. It has to be something that makes you happy from the inside, which is why you're ultimately going to end up with some kind of spiritual perspective that brings you so much pleasure that you're willing to, even the chocolate just loses its glow in a way, Right. And uh, then, then it's not an issue anymore. I think those, I've come to the same conclusion myself, um, probably in a similar, but probably not exactly the same way you did, that the only way that I will ever conquer my craving for chocolate, so to speak, 
is that I have a longing for what you might call the vine or life or whatever we call it that is just more powerful than even my craving for chocolate. But, you know, that, you know, that's easy to say when there isn't my favorite chocolate just like staring me in the face and like out and like, you know, whatever. I mean, it's a challenge, I think, for all of us who are cravers, but certainly for me, you know, when it says, really? Um, I have a lot of pseudo aliveness for you sitting here and moreover, I smell very good and I'm out and I'm not even unwrapping paper. And, Absolutely, uh, it talks to you too. It talks to me too, that chocolate. <laughs> it it's, it's like a little seductress. And it's saying like, you know, the reason I can get you is you don't really feel fully alive inside anyway. Because if you did, I couldn't seduce you or I wouldn't let you seduce me or whatever, which is, you know, I think for, those of us who are born towards shame around there's something wrong with me to begin with right which is like every human being practically I think. yes but some of us have some of us our core fears are around you know there's something wrong with me whereas others of us you know it's more like uh uh you know i'm unfulfillable or something you know they don't they have a slightly different flavor if i may well, I think going back to the fact that everything is impermanent, if we start pay paying attention to the fact that that idea does change and there are moments whenever we do feel okay, that that's a place to help people put their attention. You know, I mean, I'm, a, I'm big on attention. I think it's important. You know, We have a power that we are not taught very often to utilize. I think the, the, the pull to mind for people being mindful and meditating is good because you're working with you know, exercising your attention a little bit, you know, bringing it back consciously, purposefully. But it has a much more powerful impact in your daily life when you start to understand how you can use it to stay um, centered, happy, peaceful, no matter what's coming away, coming along. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying that it's doable, right? In time, with practice and the right attitude. Yeah, well, so teach us, how is it going for you? in all of this because i know you've had your own journey around all of this how's it going and my own journey it's um, um my inner world is doing great my outer world continues to fall apart shift and change and have multiple failures and minimal successes and it's very challenging right i mean people who are listening to this podcast may never have heard of me may not know that i've written five books may not be aware of me at all and i have 35 years of effort put into it the key for me is that it's okay now, right? That that's the case, that, you know, that's not happening. It's not disturbing my everyday sense of calm and happiness and joy to be alive. Um, and that's cool. That's not to say that during the day I don't lose it because, of course, my own work says you're going to lose it, right? <laughs> it's going to go away. And so then I'm learning how to just be with that and understand that. So I'm doing good. And my, ex my internal life is continuing to get better. My external life is full of all the challenges that everyone else has. And, uh, you know, trying to stay alive, trying to make money, trying to do X, Y, and Z, be happy, have relationships, you know, not get too much overweight. <laughs> that chocolate, oh, that's a, that's a killer. <laughs> anyway, that's my story. And I thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I know it was your first interviewee. So we just kind of had a good chat. I hope your viewers enjoy it. I'm sure they will. Why don't you take one second, Ragini, and just uh, attune to whatever you would call the divine or guru or anything, and 
just if there's anything more that feels important to share or anything more about our process or anything at all, there may not be, but it's an invitation, not an obligation. And if there isn't, we'll just say. I think what I, what I like to share when I talk with people about this work is a quote from Nursagadatta, who was an Indian mystic who died not too long ago. He was a little guy who ran a beady stand on the corner somewhere in India. Beedi's doing a little Indian cigarettes. Anyway, he was a well-known mystic, and this particular phrase is the one that really kind of brings the whole thing together that I have dedicated my life to learning how to live, which is love tells me I am everything. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Between these two, my life flows. I think that's so beautiful. So I'm happy to end with that. Thank you so much. And, um, Thank you, Andy. True pleasure. Okay. So my dear friends, um, you can find Ragini Michaels. Uh, I will tell you, anyone who does listen to this, even though she's becoming more comfortable with not being found, she would be equally comfortable with being found. And from a totally self-serving, light and self-interest point of view, um, my hope for you is you were able to find her because uh, it will really be worth your while. So having said that, I wish you well, and I will say for the time of my own, goodbye. Goodbye. I'm going to end now. I've never done this before, so I don't even know how to end this stupid thing. You just have to stop recording. Yes, but I don't see the recording button. Stop recording. <laughs>